Welcome to this special edition of a CMO podcast, which we're recording today at the International Restrictive Covenants Conference in London. My name is Beth Hale. I'm Technical Director at CM Murray, and I've got with me Sarah Chilton, who's a partner at CM Murray, and Joy Deepoor, who's founder of uh, People and Culture Strategies based in Australia. And I've just attended their panel, uh, which was on innovations in restrictive covenants and uh, drafting issues. So you might think that then we're going to talk about innovations in drafting, but I'm not quite sure that's the most exciting thing to talk about on a podcast. And actually what we, where we got to on the panel was that, in fact, a lot of the innovation that might be going on in businesses relates more to actually preventing people from perhaps leaving and competing in the first place rather than sort of dealing with it after the event and trying to mop up a mess that's being created. And Joydeep, you had some interesting things to say about things employers can do to try and actually stop those employees competing in the first place, retain that talent so that you don't have to deal with restricted covenants. That's right, Sarah. And I think it was a, a, an interesting discussion, uh, very aptly chaired by you, if I might uh, say so, uh, where we, we were able to talk about those, let's call them non-legal strategies available to employers, but very much in the context of looking at what is perhaps the more traditional way of looking at it, which is uh, how do you deal with this through your employment contracts? And you're quite right. A lot of the work that um, I've done with, with my clients around these kinds of issues um, stems from the fact that they realise and appreciate that if you're putting all of your eggs in the basket of litigation, then it's very expensive. It's not going to do wonders for your culture. It doesn't really mm-hmm. um, save you uh, any anything in terms of time and resources, and, and it's probably all going to end badly, even if you win, which, is, which has led me to really think about, well, what, what are organisations needing to do to avoid being in that space, prevention being better than the cure in, in many instances? And I think that the, the simple message that I try to share is... Um, a whole of life cycle approach to this is, is is the key for employers. So from the moment that you're looking to recruit people, are you looking at recruiting people who are going to act in a manner that is consistent with the behaviours and values that, that you need in your organisation, one of which is hopefully um, not engaging in things that's going to be destructive to your business mm-hmm. when, when they leave. Um, also things like how do you remunerate, how do you incentivate, how do you succession plan, how do you uh, bed down your key customers and clients with um, other people in your organisation, all of the things that really are more practical and effective ways of protecting your business mm-hmm. uh, and also are going to, to achieve a lot of additional benefits other than the mere avoidance of litigation. Yeah, it's a much more holistic strategy, isn't it, sort of looking at those things. And it's something that, in fact, remuneration is something that came up in a different context on the panel where we had one of our panellists chatting about remuneration being used as a sort of carrot and stick mechanism to make people comply which is slightly more still on the side of looking at what happens when it goes wrong when someone leaves but it's still a slightly different approach to a sort of traditional restricted covenant where you literally just try and say you can't do x y and z or we will sue you it's much more about saying well if you do x y and z we won't pay you the money that you think that you've earned over the last three years for example which is something that's quite commonly used in the financial services sector and so he was talking to us about that which is sort of a halfway house in a way it kind of tries to deal with those incentivization issues but is still a bit of a you know restricted covenant in the traditional sense and a bit of a threat but i, I think it might take a while for certainly lawyers to maybe get on board with the idea that we need to just ditch the law for a while and just think about the psychological strategies. We don't want to put out of work. <laughs> well, that's right. And I think that the observation that was made was that uh, looking at your, your legal strategies, not as being the, the be-all and end-all, but very much part and parcel of your holistic strategies, as yeah. you say, Sarah, is, is, is very much the, the, the solution. 
Yeah, I actually found uh, some of the discussion around garden leaf very interesting as well because uh, I know in an Australian context that uh, garden leaf serves a, a couple of really key benefits for an employer. The first is that um, at a practical level, um, the relevant person is still on your books, so you, you still have exercise uh, or the ability to exercise More control, control over what, what yeah. they do and don't do. And, and some employers like having that misconduct trump card up their sleeve a little bit as well if they do yeah. misbehave during that time. But the other benefit that it serves in an Australian context is it's this it's really strong messaging to a court that says, well, look, if we've got a six-month notice period, for example, um, whether we choose to guard and leave you for that period or not, it's telling the court and, and the individual that your role is so key that it's not sufficient for you to just be able to leave this particular organisation yeah. on one month or four week or five weeks notice. And uh, you are sending a message to a court that a person's um, notice period is actually similar to the time that you might need after they cease employment. So a six-month notice period backed up with a six-month mm-hmm. post-employment restraint or restrictive covenant is actually psychologically a lot more enforceable in the court side because you've actually said to the court, well, we were prepared to pay the person mm-hmm. for six months as well. And in the event that we were to have to, for example, terminate the employment for misconduct with zero notice, we would still need six months mm-hmm. So it's, it's quite a, a practical And it builds one. in a bit of an insurance policy as well, having a garden leave provision, because if your covenants do get struck down, I mean, we've had recent case law in the UK where lots of employers will have challenges enforcing their covenants because a particularly stringent approach was taken by the Court of Appeal, and it's on appeal to the Supreme Court. But there are employers out there who now have unenforceable covenants, and at least if they've got garden leave, then they're going to have something. So they can put that person on garden leave probably in is much easier to do that than with a covenant. And then at least, you know, say they've got a six-month notice period, they'll have six months of that person not competing. Whereas if they only had a covenant and they had no long notice period or a right to put on garden and they couldn't do that, then they might have no protection at all. So it definitely helps in that perspective. Someone else was also saying, interestingly, jurisdictions where they can't even enforce garden leave, she said if you put it in anyway, psychologically employees expect it, they actually comply with it, which I find quite remarkable because I think, well, if someone came to me and said, I've got this garden leave provision and it wasn't enforceable or I've got this covenant, the first thing I'll say is it's not enforceable to, you know, do what you want. Obviously, it's very difficult in the UK to ever give an absolute guarantee because things are all so dependent on the facts as they are everywhere. But it struck me as, as kind of odd that executives would play nice in that context and just not do it because it says that you shouldn't do it, even if actually legally it can't work. But her experience was really interesting to say that actually that's what's happening in some jurisdictions. Yeah. And I think the other thing I found particularly interesting in what uh, what she was sharing was some of the um, specific detail that's often being written into these contracts. And I've seen a lot of it in, uh, in, in partnership agreements for accounting firms and, and law firms that, that talk about the, the ability for a person who is leaving the organisation to buy out and having your kind of formulas written in. Uh, to that, which, which takes away so much angst, because mm. if ultimately the organisation from whom the person is departing is concerned about losing a certain amount of revenue, um, well, that's just all dealt with up front, and yeah. uh, it allows the person who's leaving to get on with their life. Mm-hmm. Um, they know that it comes at a cost, but it avoids the, the cost and adverse reputational impact of, of litigation and, and all of those kinds of things as well. And um, I wonder, Sarah, are you, are you seeing um, in, in the UK context people being quite specific around um, listing specific competitors, for example, or um, are they taking a lot more time with their drafting around this? 
They should be. Query whether they are. I mean, I think we are still seeing quite a lot of old covenants that haven't been updated. We don't see much listing of competitors. And in fact, a lot of the problem we see at the moment is that covenants are too broadly drafted. So where we've we've kind of always had this approach whereby you have to be fairly specific and narrow to get your covenant to be enforced by the courts. But there are still quite a lot of covenants out there that we see either challenging them or trying to pick them apart from the employer's side where they've obviously been drafted a while ago or in haste. I think also the other problem people have is not being specific enough. They just recycle covenants. So they look at a covenant that they might have for one thing and they just think that will apply and then they end up with a covenant that doesn't work. I think the risk of specific competitors though is it doesn't kind of provide for them a new employer, a new competitor popping up. So you kind of need to cover both bases in that sense. You need to have some sort of covenant that says you can't work for someone who does these types of competitive activities and you'd also potentially need to have a, a list of competitors. What I see more is at the end of the employment relationship, people negotiate around which competitors can and can't, you know, you can go to these competitors or you can take these clients. So they kind of use the end of the, the relationship to be the negotiating point. On to sort of a completely different point, but something I find quite interesting at the end of the session around regulation and around sort of criminal aspects, and it's a completely different side of it from the drafting and the cultural stuff. But it is a little bit about the psychology. It's about that you know, psychological threat of criminal prosecution, for example. We have sort of two things in the UK. One is the Information Commissioner's Office, who regulate all the data protection legislation and enforcement of that here. And there's also regulated industries, so financial services, law, for example. Um, to work in a regulated industry, you typically need to demonstrate to the regulator that you're either fit and proper or that you uphold integrity, things like that. And I suppose there's an argument, if you're stealing confidential information, it's a theft, essentially. Are you actually an honest, fit and proper person? Albeit, that does, you know, it's a bit of a jump to say, well, you're stealing confidential information, you can't be trusted to manage someone's money, but nevertheless. Um, and the data protection aspect is that someone can actually be prosecuted for uh, stealing a database of information. It would typically only happen where that database contains personal information about, say, candidates, so it's a recruitment you know, is a particular risk. Um, and we've had it happen in recruitment. We've had a case in the UK where a recruitment person was prosecuted for taking a database. But that creates a whole different type of incentive. So I think in that context, actually, the threat, I certainly know if it was me, the threat of a criminal record would be enough to make me stop doing what I was doing. And so whilst I don't necessarily think we'll see it become mainstream in terms of employers routinely reporting stuff um, on a criminal basis, actually the threat of it. And one of our panellists was saying that, you know, they see that threat being banded around much more now since GDPR has come into force across Europe than before. So I think that's a whole different psychological threat, um, which is very much... If you did flag up the issue with the GDPR and the data protection uh, threat, is that the ICO then might come in and say, actually, the reason they've been able to do this is because your systems and procedures aren't up to scratch and that's why they've been able to do this. And so as an employer, you need to be fairly sure that you're sort of whiter than white before you start yeah. um, dobbing in your employees, I think. Have you got the criminal side of things to deal with yeah, in Australia? The criminal side of things is interesting because we, we don't have that same level of sophistication as, as yet in terms of the linkage between a business confidential information and, and um, you know, a criminal record or a criminal prosecution. But, but there are provisions in a couple of states which actually require um, anyone who has knowledge of a uh, serious indictable offence or um, a crime having been committed to who, to uh, require them to notify the police. 
And so that in itself is quite interesting Mm. leverage for an employer. And we see this happen quite a lot where in the exchange of correspondence between lawyers say, well, it appears that your client may well have engaged in a crime. As you know, we're not doing this to, to leverage anything, but we have an obligation under the Crimes Act to report that to the police mm. and that is the same issue that you were talking about before that often the, the mere spectre of that uh, looming over someone's head is enough to get them to pay properly. Yeah, it's a good threat. It would work on me, that's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think it would work on most people. <laughs> so I think that's probably all we've got time for. If you want any more information from the UK perspective or, or about our conference, then you can get in touch with us at CM Murray. Um, our details are in the podcast notes. And for Australia or for anything restricted covenant in that region, you can get in touch with Joy Deep. Yeah, or our website, peopleculture.com.au. Yeah, great. Um, thanks, Beth. Thanks, Joy Deep. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks.